Our topic this morning is guidance or inner guidance. And the beginning, God's guidance could be likened to walking through one of those glass labyrinths like they have in the House of Mirrors. I'm sure that all of you can remember as a child the first time that you walked through one of those things. I hope you can. How many people can remember? You know the little glass you don't? All right, okay. So those of you who haven't had that experience, these are just plate, big plate glass walls and you don't know where the door is. And so the fun is running into the glass. <laughs> and in the beginning, God's guidance is a feeling such as there's no wall here. It's sort of confusing. You don't know where there is no wall. But you begin to discover first in one aspect of your life and then another that there's an opening unseen but unquestionably there because when you walk in this direction there's an ease to everything. And perhaps you can recall a child the first time you went through one of these glass labyrinths. In the beginning you were quite confused, happily confused. You knew it was all a game, but you were confused nonetheless. And Maybe you did run into the wall a little bit. And then perhaps you learn to sort of feel along, like we sort of feel the events and where to walk during the day, what event to accept, and what event, event to gently step away from. Quite similar to feeling along the glass and seeing where the opening lies. And then perhaps you look down at the floor and you saw the way that others had gone before you. You saw these dusty footprints. And you realized that the majority of the footprints led to the opening. So you began following, in faith, the footprints of other people. You trusted them. And this saved you some time. And then after that, Perhaps you actually began to see a little. You began to notice that there were smudges on the uh, uh, on the forehead marks on the glasses. <laughs> Whereas the opening was absolutely clear. It seemed like nothing, but it led you to freedom eventually at least a lessening of, uh, of the pain of running into things momentarily. Now the only thing that varies in this analogy is that God's opening always lies in the same direction. Whereas with the labyrinth, you don't know exactly where the door will be placed. But in life, the door is always placed in the place of peace. It never varies. So it's as if you're in this labyrinth, but eventually you discover that if you always walk simply and straight ahead, 
you will suffer no pain, and that the shouts of your friend on the on your, of your friends on the outside will grow louder, and the laughter will grow louder, and eventually you will join your brothers and your sisters outside. But remember that this came in stages. And learning to hear God's guidance, although it's so simple and it's so obvious, comes in stages also. There are some little pitfalls, some little things that distract us. And I'm not sure this could be called guidance, but what seems to substitute for guidance in the beginning is the setting of external goals. And this is a necessary step to go through. It does appear as if there are things that we can accomplish in the world. There are things that shine brightly and that we wish to go after. And we should go after them because we need to find out whether or not this tarnishes once we place our hands upon it. After a while, we, we can begin simply not taking these things up because we see a pattern in it all. But in the beginning, it's a good thing. It's a necessary thing. It is certainly an unavoidable thing to set goals. And it is true that in some of the churches and in some of the self-help organizations and so forth, the setting of an external goal is linked with the truth of God. And of course, it has nothing to do with the truth of God. The fact that you decide that you will set this goal and you go about it and you do reach it. And there are certain things that you can learn about how the world operates that will allow you to do this. After I'd written notes to myself... No, excuse me, after I'd written, uh, there is a place, uh, no, uh, I touch the earth, the earth touches me. <laughs> after I'd written my second book, <laughs> after I'd written my second book, I decided I wanted to be a real author. What was this business of little sentences and lots of white space and so forth? <clears throat> and one of the first things I did is I got a real publisher. Uh, Real People Press. <laughs> this is, that, that was my former publisher. That was the one I began with. And no real author would be with Real People Press. They made the big move from Lafayette, California to Moab, Utah. <laughs> uh, but did not increase the size of their staff, which I think was two. Uh, so I, I had to be a real author. I badgered some poor woman in New York. It took me several months to get her to sign a contract with me to be my agent because if I was going to be a real author, I needed a literary agent. And I'm still paying for that to this day. I, I sold two books after that, refused to let her do any of the negotiation, but she, of course, got her 10% because I'd insisted on this contract. Well, in addition to that, I also said, well, if I'm going to be a real author, I have to write a novel, or at least have to write a long allegorical poem. So, 
I began with a long allegorical poem uh, entitled it, Wipe Your Face, You Just Swallowed My Soul. Uh, Badger Doubleday into taking it. They had already published one book of mine. It was doing well. So I thought I had a little leverage. I said, you just, you know, I, I have all this breadth, you see. You can't you confine me to just one thing. Well, people wrote me letters asking if I was on dope and <laughs> had I had a psychotic break and so forth. Uh, and uh, eventually I bought the book back. Uh, unfortunately, it had a semi-nude painting on the front cover. Actually, it was a lovely drawing done by John Wagner, who some, sometimes comes here. Maybe many of you know him. And a lot of the bookstores, especially the southern bookstores, once they saw it, sent it back unopened. So there was a lot of embarrassment saved for me there. But in fact, people didn't even read it. <laughs> but then I decided that what was in my own best interest was to write a novel. And I set that goal. And I made schedules. And I spent five years of my life writing a novel. And I sold it to Doubleday. And I got an advance. And I spit, spent the advance. And then I took a look at the novel. Hadn't come out yet. Its publication had been announced several times. Each time uh, I had said, well, let's wait just a little bit. I've got this other book, you know. We could put that out. But one day I took a look at the novel. And I bought it back. <laughs> this one didn't even get out there. But I would say all together, we're talking about six years of writing, if you include the allegorical poem, because I knew what was in my own best interests. And this is an unavoidable thing that we all go through, thinking that we know what's in our own best interests. We know the job we should get, or that we should even have a job. We know that we should have a husband or a wife. We know that we should have a child. We know how much money should be in our bank account. We know what car we should drive. And I'm sure all of you, if we were to devote the rest of this meeting to this kind of story, could tell stories about how you thought that something would be in your own best interests. And then it turned out to be a complete disaster. One of the lessons in A Course in Miracles is simply that thought. I do not know what is in my own best interest. And I can remember a friend of mine who was an ex-Jesuit priest. Uh, when he came across that lesson, he came over to my house and he was just furious, just absolutely furious about this uh, lesson. How does it know that I don't know what's in my own best interest? And then he would cite a number of things. And then he said, uh, what I can be helpful with my book that I've sent in, I know that it's, it would be helpful if that were published right now. It was being shown around. And so then I told him my story. And he said, oh, maybe you're right. Maybe this may not be the right time for it to be published. Maybe it would be helpful if it was turned down a few times and I rewrote it and add things that I didn't even think of. He, on his own, he suddenly began to realize, how did he know that it should be published now? And what company should publish it? Or that it should even be published? 
or what the effect of the whole thing would be. As it turned out, this man, who was in physical therapy at the time, very advanced form of physical therapy, completely changed his theory as to what was going on in the body. And I bet he's, I haven't talked to him, but I bet he's very happy that he did not publish that book because he looks at the body so differently now and he works on the body so differently. Another form of guidance that's a pitfall, it's not really guidance. And let me say this about the setting of goals. How many he people here have come more than once to the dispensable church. I don't want to embarrass them. Okay. So this is what I figured. I figured that probably about 75 to 80 percent of the people who come here have come here before. You know the dose of insanity you're going to get on Sunday morning. And so I say things to you that I would not say to other groups because we have talked about things and we've gone along step by step. And so let me add what I've added before. I hope no one would leave this room and call anyone else on setting goals or call any organization that advocates the setting of goals or call any teacher or minister or psychologist who helps people set goals more effectively. It has nothing to do with the truth of God, but it is a necessary step. And if people can reach their goal more quickly, they will find out more quickly that there is no external goal that's going to satisfy them, that will bring peace to their life. And when churches that teach truth also teach the setting of goals, this can be extremely helpful because it will bring people to truth by learning about goals. Learning about how to arrive at goals. So many people are brought to truth because an organization or a church or a society or something says we can help you with your goals and they come there and sure enough they do and at the same time they get truth. So there's absolutely no grounds for criticizing any. All of us are working on different levels. Every level is necessary. This church is operating at a particular level. There are teachers in this world who are operating at a higher level than this church operates. And there are teachers that are operating at a lower level. None of that makes any difference because all of it's necessary. And you can feel whether or not you're comfortable with, with the teaching and the progression. And what we're doing here, here, of course, is a progression. We start out and we add things each Sunday and we go along. And we walk together hand in hand. Because I'm not teaching you anything that I am not learning at the same time. This is not something that I uh, uh, came through many years ago and am condescending to passing along. I give it to you hot off the press. <laughs> so let's take another thing and please, once again, there's no reason to call anyone on that does this kind of thing. A lot of people do this kind of thing as a living. The interpreting of signs. Now, of course, the truth is that whatever comes from God does not require interpreting. If you find yourself having to interpret anything, it's simply not coming from God. But an interpretation 
of anything can be extremely helpful if the motive is for it to be helpful and if it's done with love and kindness. So there's the interpreting of the effect of past lives. This can be very helpful to someone who thinks that possibly they're being influenced by their past lives and uh, they want to uh, deal with that. It is really no different than interpreting the effect of a childhood or those parts of the childhood experience that we think we remember. Interpreting those. It's no different than interpreting a dream or interpreting uh, the weather or <coughs> interpreting uh, the, the I Ching or interpreting anything. But whatever comes from God comes in peace and it relaxes you and there's this ah, and you know and there's no fight and there's no struggle but not everyone is open enough to have that experience all the time and so there are these little steps that come along and you will hear people citing signs as to why they have done what they've done if your husband or wife comes to you and well, let's say your husband comes to you and says, I've just met someone and we knew each other in a past life. <laughs> I can be, if this is someone of the opposite sex, I can tell you what's going to happen. Because <laughs> people on a spiritual path seem to always have affairs with, with someone that they think that they've known in a past life. <laughs> is that not true? Yes, right. Oh, I knew her in my past life. It's perfectly innocent. <laughs> now, the interesting thing about that is that in the past life, she was married to someone else. Now, why isn't he jealous about that? Have you ever noticed that? If we really think that the person was such and such, then wouldn't he be just as jealous? There's someone in this very church who says that that the person that he's dating, he says this with a twinkle in his eye, because he thinks it's, it's funny, but the person that he's dating in two previous lives killed him. <laughs> I heard a correction. It was three times. All right. Why isn't he Larry of this person? <laughs> But nevertheless, just say, yes, I know that. I'm sure that's true, you see. Even though they're not acting as though it's true. And uh, if, uh, if your little uh, child who's on a spiritual path goes to pick out a puppy and the puppy wanders over. There's one puppy that always wanders over and licks your hand, you see. If you're on a spiritual path, you claim telepathy, you see. You know that God has selected this puppy out. There's no reason to to question that. Uh, or if you find yourself wandering downtown and you see the silver saddle. How many people have seen the silver saddle downtown? And you say to yourself, well, that would look magnificent in our living room, you see. And uh, of course, it would take all the savings for the house that the family's been making. And, uh, but it would look so good. Of course, you can't ride a horse. But it would look so great in your living room. And so this becomes a real question that you must take to God. Should I buy the silver saddle and just impress the, you know what, out of all my friends with the silver saddle 
And as you're driving by the store, what happens? A car pulls out. And there's a parking place right in front of the front door. Isn't this God nodding his head and saying, yes, forget the savings for the house, buy the silver saddle, you see. So if you've gotten to the point where trying to read signs is beginning to distress you, <laughs> there is a much simpler way to hear God's guidance. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Let's talk about a couple more pitfalls. There is something that could be called the collective ego. And the collective ego can be turned to for advice. And one of the assumptions that people make in turning to the collective ego is if someone died, they're smarter. Now, let's just look at that for a minute because uh, we go to people and they contact someone who's, who, who's dead and are, you know, they just died recently. Or maybe they died a long time ago. They know a whole lot if they did that. Now, the very people who do this, of course, also believe that they've died a long time ago, many times, but that doesn't make them any smarter because they're still alive. This person, this person, however, all right, now, so let's look at that just for a moment. Does it make someone wiser because they've died? Yes, people who have died can be contacted. There's no doubt about that. But is this really the advisor that you wish to place your life in whose hands you wish to place your life? This is the question. Tremendous importance is given uh, some entity who scribbles something on a Ouija board uh, because uh, they're not around. You can't see them, therefore it must be very profound. Now if that's true, wouldn't the nature of their death also indicate how wise they are? For example, if the person uh, had died while fasting and in a vegetable garden. <laughs> They'd been fasting for oh so long, but they were still out weeding the vegetable garden, and they just, just their body couldn't take it. Now, wouldn't they be wiser than someone who was mashed flat by a taxi? <laughs> Certainly, it would have to follow, wouldn't it? That if how long ago you die, or the fact that you died, or how that you died. Now, once again, there, I don't mean, and I would not say this in front of a society whose whole emphasis was on uh, listening to people who passed on. Uh, because what I know happens in those groups is that a very lovely interpretation is given to these communications. So these people bring... Uh, very fine human qualities to the interpretation of the words that come to them in the seance or while meditating or through the pendulum or whatever, however way the, the communication is coming to them or in a dream. And I've seen some of the, mo the weirdest statements turn into the most beautiful lessons because that was the purpose that the person had in interpreting the message. So the fact is that God is everywhere. God can be heard everywhere. 
And anywhere someone cares to look, if they wish to hear the voice of God, they can hear it, whether it's in interpreting signs or listening to people who've passed on or uh, setting, even setting external goals. The last pitfall, and possibly the one that is most difficult to uh, see, is just simple excitement. Uh, especially a subdued excitement that's coupled with a sense of importance. So this is something that all of us feel when we're making large purchases. There's a subdued excitement. Everyone in the store is being so nice to us and everything. And, and we make the large purchase. And they remember us when we come back into the store. And uh, So notice, though, there's, this is not the peace of God. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't make the large purchase. But just notice that this has nothing to do with the peace of God. There's a sense of anxiety underlying very subdued and a sense of importance. And this sense of excitement is it's the uh, it's the opiate of the ego. It's the fix of the ego. We talked a little bit about this last Sunday. But look what can be done in the name of excitement. I can remember as a boy being taken big game hunting uh, by both my dad and by my stepdad and there was such a sense of excitement and killing things and it didn't stop until I ki killed a huge moose in Canada and that moose took a very long time to die and he screamed and screamed and I suddenly realized what I'd done I'd never seen the animal as anything else but an animal and I stopped hunting at that point but I can't say it wasn't exciting. But what's exciting is not happy. And that's the difference. And this takes a while because there's still many excitements that we think are happy. The excitement of gossip. Many of us still think this is really a happy thing to do. And no one should stop it, gossiping, until they begin to see that it's not making them happy. Then it'll just sort of ease out. But one helpful thing is to notice the excitement. If there is a sense of excitement, and if you find yourself asking yourself, should I do this particular thing, say this particular thing, here you are talking, an idea comes for you to say this to this person, and you notice that you're very excited about saying it, or you're you're trying to do something about your health and you're, and you're wishing to simplify your, your, your diet and suddenly you have a sense of excitement about eating this particular food. I can tell you there's a very simple rule. If the question arises, raises excitement within you, the answer is no. If you want the peace of God. Now if you don't see it and you think it would be a sacrifice to back away from this particular th thing, go ahead and say it or go ahead and eat it or go ahead and wear it. You know, we have a particular sense of excitement because we're going to put on this particular thing. But notice that following, that there's a ramification to the excitement. The excitement doesn't end. This is the primary gift of the ego, is excitement. It's a promise. But the promise will always go unfulfilled. 
And this is what begins to allow us to turn away from the ego, is seeing that the excitement will not be fulfilled. This is what allows the alcoholic to stop drinking. There's always the sense of excitement about getting drunk, but there is no gift. There's a gift offered, but it cannot be received. You reach for it and it is not there. And so if you will notice the excitement and you will notice what happens after the excitement when you do the excitement, you will quickly see whether or not excitement is true guidance. <coughs> do you wish the counseling of excitement? The ego doesn't care what it's excited about. It can be excited about being fired. It can be excited about getting married. It can be excited about a war that's just started. We run to the TV set to see what's happening in the war. The ego doesn't care what the excitement's coming from. It can come from a death. It can come from a promotion. It can come from an inheritance. It can come from the death of the relative. The ego doesn't care. Notice, it doesn't care, but it wants the excitement. But the excitement is merely an empty promise that substitutes for the peace of God. And so very gently, you might want to look at that and see if you want to follow those counselings. Well, I forgot to stop. I forgot to start the stopwatch. How long have I been talking? <laughs> How long have I been talking? No one knows. All right. Oh, I've got the watch, don't I? All right. All right. All right, let's talk about the stages of guidance. You see how thorough we're being today? <laughs> talk about the stages of guidance. Here, if you are like most people, are the stages you are going through and learning to hear the voice of God. The first one is emotion. And so, none of all of you, of course, are past this. I, I realize that. <laughs> Those of you who come more than once to dispensable church are questionably past this. But back in the old days, you were driving your car, and suddenly you remembered that your parents didn't buy you a pony. <laughs> <laughs> and you were old enough, you were 14 when you asked for the pony. And it would have been a very small thing for them to do, but they didn't do it. And so, obviously, uh, they are very repressed. And you are very angry as you drive in the car and you run in the house and you call them and you tell them just how repressed they are <laughs> and how much damage that this has done to you. And do, you, do they know what happens every time you pass a field that has dancing, playing horses in it? You see, this was a type of guidance. It was an emotion. And the assumption we make is that the emotion must be acted on. So you get mad at your parents, and of course you have to let them know about it. And the, the effect is great because what you're telling them is that they shouldn't be uh, repressed, they should be open. And you scream this to them. And this greatly increases their liking for openness. As a result. Uh, 
So every emotion that goes off within us does not have to be acted upon. And oftentimes when you feel the peace of God, you will have no desire to do anything in particular, although you might do something, but you will do it with ease. And you won't particularly care about the result because you will enjoy doing it so much or not doing it. So it's the peace of God is not lethargy. It's happiness. It's perspective. It's realizing what's important and what's not important. Very often when uh, a couple has a child die, they go through a stage in which they see clearly what is important and what is not important. And this can be disconcerting to them and to the people around them because suddenly these people aren't doing the things that everyone thinks is important, like washing the dishes and making the bed and getting to the job on time and uh, uh, answering the RSVP and all this thing because suddenly they realize this isn't important and they want very much to live in a way that will be important. The next stage is reason. So we reason out like Aristotle reasoned out how many teeth are in the mouth of a woman. Just never did look in there is all. <laughs> just happened to get it wrong. <laughs> this wasn't that there wasn't that number of teeth, uh, but it was the reasoning was beautiful. Uh, and so reasoning, of course, is only as good as, as the premise. And, but nevertheless, we go through this state in which we now, instead, of, we, we're not going to rely on emotion anymore. We're going to rely on our reason. And this is definitely a step forward. Never tell someone they're too rational. This is a step forward because look what's happening. Now, instead of just blind abeyance to some feeling, some bodily charge, there's now what? There is a pausing, so there's a little stillness that's been added now, and now there is a turning to some other part of the mind. It may not be the highest part of the mind, but it is definitely a higher part of the mind than just going out there and raping because you are horny or whatever the thing may be. It's, it's, it's higher than that. Or going and taking the money because you're tired of being poor and so you go hold up the thing. It's much better than that. It's a, it's a, it's a step upward. But it is not, of course, the final step. Nevertheless, back in the old days, uh, you did reason out one day that what your parents needed was to be real. You reasoned this out, and you reasoned that, that it would help them be real if they had someone who was real around them. This was their problem, you see. They didn't have anyone real in their life. And so you called them up on the phone, and you said, guess what, I'm coming to visit you. And your thing was you're going to go be be real, and so the whole time you were there, uh, you burped and you cussed and you <clears throat> you didn't wear deodorant and your mother pleaded with you to shave your legs but you refused and <clears throat> and this indeed gave them a great appreciation of realness. <laughs> Very helpful to them. After reason 
comes something that's getting very close <coughs> to true guidance, and that is an appreciation of a certain quality. Now, for me, this was honesty. That is the one thing, when I was an atheist, that was the one thing I believed in, was honesty. It seemed to work miracles, being honest. But that's not the only quality. Fairness, goodness, kindness, generosity. We all have met people who now see the value of being generous or being fair. We all know people who treat their employees fairly who have tried to be fair with their children. We know people who are open and honest, true honesty. Now notice, once again, look what's going on here. There is now a pause, and a part of the mind is being turned to. And because these qualities are very close to the nature of God, they, of course, lead us even more uh, accurately more peacefully and bring more happiness. But it's not the final line. And of course you all remember the time that you decided to be uh, fair with your parents. And uh, it was maybe the first time you attended the dispensable church and you sent them these three little books. See? Now they were good Southern Baptists but you sent this little book and you attached a note and said, this was Jesus' latest effort. <laughs> You're sure they would like to see it, you see. And here these people, uh, these dear people, when they have to go to the bathroom, they go in and turn on the sink and the tub and the shower and lock the door and make coughing noises. And yet you are, this is, this is the state that they're living in, and yet you are going to send them these three little books in fairness, they should know, in all fairness, they should know that Jesus did not last speak on the Sermon on the Mount. So that, of course, is not the end, because that also includes a limit. So if we say, I will just be honest, or I will just be fair, or I will just be generous, then there's still a little door through which the ego can come in and uh, cause a great deal of mischief. So the next stage could be called a sense of peace. And this is where most of us are now, and that is we've begun to appreciate a sense of peace. The word peace is used throughout A Course in Miracles as an extremely useful word because it is so broad and so all-encompassing. And although it is not pure peace, it includes some threads of pure peace. And so you can consult your sense of, well, let's take, for example, financial worries. All of us have a sense of no financial problems. We have a sense of what that is, no financial problems. You can consult your sense of no financial problems. You don't have to read signs as to where to spend the money or doing any of these other things that might lead you astray. What is your sense of what you should spend, of how much money you need to make? 
in order to have no financial problems. There's no hocus pocus in this. Now you're truly centered. Now you're beginning to see. Now you're beginning to exercise the dominion that you actually have. What is your sense of physical well-being? We all have. We don't have to. This isn't a lot of mumbo-jumbo type stuff we go through about how do we get physical well-being. If we'll just take our sense of physical well-being, we all have a sense of how much rest we need to get, of what foods it would be good for us to eat, of what medicines that might help us and what medicines might not help us. This has nothing to do with anyone else. what anyone else is doing. We have a sense of how much exercise. Now, where that sense gets disturbed is if we read some article, like I did uh, several years ago. I, at that time, I was jogging about uh, eight miles a day, and I started reading these articles on uh, super lengths, jogging super lengths. And I, I didn't, wasn't consulting my sense of what I should do. I allowed myself to be convinced by this spat of articles on this subject and increased it to 15 to 18 miles. And I, that's when I started having all my problems with with jogging. It, up until then, from the time I was 12 until that time, it had been a very pleasant activity. But it was just, I was just following my sense. Suddenly I thought I had to read all the magazines about this kind of thing. So there is no external influence in your sense of well-being. Financial. What is your sense of how to get along with your friends or this particular friend? Consult it. It will, it will tell you something because it contains the peace of God. God's peace is like a rug that's just thrown over everything. It covers everything. You walk on the rug instead of on the sharp rocks and on the sticks and on the cuckleburrs. You walk on the rug and it covers everything. God's guidance is God's peace. And it's a sense that you have within you that connects you with God. The hardest thing to do and this is the hardest thing to learn and this is the thing that's pushed out of the mind when it is heard and this is the thing that's dismissed. The hardest step to take, the highest hurdle to jump over in our walk toward God is believing that all that is asked of us is to relax and be happy. That nothing more than that takes us forward. Just simple liking of where you are and who you're with just simple comfort as your goal. But look at all the things that we make more important than that. I'd like you to close your eyes with me and let's remember just in this past week. This is a meditation in which we're going to ask ourselves one simple question. Why this rush to get things done? Why this rush to get things done? If it would help you to see yourself as a very, very old person, looking back on your life, seeing all this darting about, 
all this preoccupations, one concern after the other, then do that. If it would help you to think of having just had a massive heart attack, you're lying in bed, and there's a real question as to whether or not you will go back into your life. If that would give you perspective, do that. But look at your life and say, why all this rushing about? What is it that has to be done? What is it that's so important that I can't relax, enjoy my home, enjoy this town, enjoy the light and the weather and my friends? What is it that has to be done first? You see, there isn't anything, is there? There isn't any reason. Now at this point, you can open your eyes if you wish. At this point, we have to take this on faith because we don't fully believe it yet. That simple relaxation and peace is the only thing that takes us forward. Why? Because it is the hand of God reached out. When you take God's hand, you are happy and you are comfortable. So you don't even have to believe in God if you will just believe in simple comfort and rest and enjoyment and peace. You will take God's hand anyway. That's why, of course, in miracles says it is not necessary to believe in God in order to be a teacher of God. All this stuff that we think is going to somehow perfect our little piece of the world. But look at the world. Aren't ants always going to build too close to the road? <clears throat> Are you going to stop that from happening? Isn't the neighborhood association always going to say the Sufis can't move in? Or the drug rehabilitation thing? Or Isn't there always going to be a new disease to replace the one that's just been cured? <laughs> new disease and a new disease and a new disease. Aren't people always going to be late to appointments? Can this isn't there always going to be incompetent in business? Incompetence in business? Aren't there always going to be people who are going to cheat a little bit when you take your car in to be fixed? I mean, is this? Let's look at the world, the nature of the world itself. Lightning is always going to strike. There will always be rivers that will flood. Tomcats will always spray the furniture. <laughs> this is an extremely important point to see because look at the wasted effort on not seeing it. Alexander the Great was going to take Greek culture and give it to all the people of the world. And indeed, Greek culture was lovely. It's beautiful art. There are great insights inspire us even today. But was he able to do that? And the crusaders were going to bring the teachings of Jesus Christ to the world. Look what happened. Look at the bloodbath. Many historians have said that four or more people have been killed in the name of religion than have ever been killed in any national war. They were going to change the world by bringing the teachings of Jesus. 
But they made a little mistake, and that was, if you don't accept Jesus, I'll chop off your head. You see? But that's what, how else you're going to change the world. You've got to get people down. You've got to shake them and beat their head on the... To get them to, because otherwise, you've got to accept that God will come to them. They will all arrive in their own time and their own way. There's nothing to do about this. But the world itself is not going to change. Some of these were good men and some of these were very bad men. Hitler was going to purify the races. From a standpoint of cattle, this seems to be a good idea. Woodrow Wilson was going to bring peace to the world. The League of Nations was going to change the world. Nothing happened. There are people who argue that the world might be better off without the United Nations, which was the subsequent organization. It, of course, that's not true either. It's just that the nature of all this, on this level, is not going to change. And so then the mistake that's made is, well, we won't do the world, we'll just do our little piece. And so you have very good, intelligent, well-meaning people who devote their lives to changing just this country like FDR he tried very very hard like Lyndon Johnson tried very very hard most of them got most of their programs intact they got most it's not that they were thwarted these men weren't thwarted but what did it do did it change the nature of anything now, insofar that these were good men, they did a great deal of good. They inspired a lot of people. They lifted a lot of lives out of misery. But they did not change the basic nature of the world. This is not a tragedy. This is just a fact. And once you see that you're not going to stop <coughs> tomcats or ants, or you're always going to have to get out and shoo the rattlesnake off the road, and every, all that stuff then you can begin to forgive it. Which is what the Course in Miracles says is the only thing that needs to be done. Simply forgive the world. Laugh gently at it. Now you're in a true position to help. Because you will actually do more once you stop condemning the world and trying to change it. Once you stop thinking that part of the world's already healed, and somehow you've got to heal the other part that's not, and you know which one, which is the difference, as soon as you do that, you will really be in a position to help. Because Mother Teresa did go back to the people she could help, but she didn't try to save the world. Jerry Jampolsky has started a peace movement Jerry Jampolsky knows that you're not going to bring peace to the world in the sense that most people think of it. And that, that everybody there's not going to be any more squabbles. There will no, be no more irritation. There will be no more outrage. That people will not see other people as different from them. But he starts a peace movement anyway. Why? Because he knows that in seeking peace people will have to discover inner peace. They will have to say you have to begin within you. There has to be peace within before all can enter 
the peace of God. Why don't we end with a, a little meditation about God's true guidance. Please consider this. That God's guidance, God's peace, is like a breeze. It blows oh so gently. But it fills your sails and moves you forward. Or it lifts your wings and lifts you upward. And if you have no sails and you have no wings, it will surround you like it surround Dorothy. It will lift you up. And it will do all of this only because you do not resist it. Resolve now, today, this instant, not to resist God's guidance, God's arms that wish to lift you, God's breeze that wishes to support you, God's rug that's placed under your feet, God's open door that opens always before you. Resolve now, this day, to not resist that, but to relax and see how quickly you are moved along by just relaxing. Today I will try to be at peace. I will just try to relax. I will just try to see how much God loves me. I will just try to see how certain is the way. I will just try to see how gentle are his people. I will laugh and I will sing and I will greet my brothers and my sisters and I will continue this very short journey into the heart of God.